0: I'm Joe Devine and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. Today I'm joined by Ben Roberts, writer of Gunshots and Goalposts, the story of Northern Irish football, and of our YouTube mini-series of the same name. I spoke to Ben about football in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, and for our listeners who maybe aren't from the UK or who aren't aware of what we refer to as the Troubles, I'm going to quickly read a synopsis as well from an article on the BBC's History Archive, just to make sure I'm getting it right. The Troubles refers to a violent thirty year conflict framed by a civil rights march in London Derry on the fifth of october nineteen sixty eight and the Good Friday Agreement on the tenth of april nineteen ninety eight. At the heart of the conflict lay the constitutional status of Northern Ireland. The goal of the Unionist and overwhelmingly Protestant majority was to remain part of the United Kingdom. The goal of the Nationalists and Republicans, almost exclusively Catholic and also a minority, was to become part of the Republic of Ireland. This was a territorial conflict, not a religious one, At its heart lay two mutually exclusive visions of national identity and national belonging. The principal difference between 68 and 98 is that the people and organisations pursuing these rival futures eventually resolved to do so through peaceful and democratic means. This ascendancy of politics over violence, though, was not easily achieved. During the Troubles, the scale of the killings perpetrated by all sides, Republican and Loyalist paramilitaries and the security forces, eventually exceeded 3,600, and as many as 50,000 people were physically maimed or injured, with countless others psychologically damaged by the conflict, a legacy that continues to shape the post-1998 period. So that's a short synopsis of what we refer to as the Troubles in this episode. Uh, Firstly, I did ask Ben to expand on that slightly, on the background of that period. A little bit later on, we get into talking more specifically about football and some of the clubs that we cover in the YouTube series, including Belfast Celtic and Linfield. And also at this point, I should note that if you're interested in finding out more about this, then you can, of course, purchase Ben's book, Gunshots and Goalposts, The Story of Northern Irish Football. It can be found online or you can go to Ben's website. At the end of this podcast he does reel off a few places where you can pick it up. Uh, The one he forgot to mention though was that if you live in Northern Ireland uh, you can buy it in Waterstones. So that's exciting too. Anyway that's all before we get started so thanks very much for downloading and we hope you enjoy the podcast.
1: Ben, can you uh, first give us a brief history of the Troubles in Northern Ireland?
2: Sure. So what we refer to now as the Troubles um, kind of came around in the the mid to late 60s in the late 1910s and early 1920s belfast had had its its first troubles and and they were known as the troubles for for a little while um but the the modern day troubles came about in i mean it's it's one of those things that um you know you ask one person and they'll tell you one thing and somebody else will tell you something slightly different but Generally speaking, you can see an uptick in sort of sectarian tension and mm. um, protests uh, around 1965, 1966. Um, you had the re-emergence of uh, loyalist paramilitary organisations uh, so the, the UVF, which had essentially been dormant for the best part of 40 years, a guy called Gusty Spence um, brought that back into existence. Um, in, uh, I mean, ostensibly, he would say to, to protect um, loyalists, unionists, Protestants from perceived threat from, from their neighbours. Um, obviously, that would be disputed. Um, the other thing that you had going on, which was seen as another catalyst, for the Troubles was um, that Catholics and Nationalists were were quite badly discriminated against in in northern ireland the ulster unionist party had 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 ruled northern ireland pr- pretty much as a as a sort of fiefdom for for the best part of 50 years um, and hadn't really seen fit to kind of sort out the discrimination in employment the electoral boundaries were horribly horribly gerrymandered mm. and so majority catholic districts and towns would have you know 10 Unionist councillors and two Catholic councillors and and so on. So there, there hadn't been much of an effort to, to address that. Um, then the the, the the Ulster Unionists um, then found themselves with a the leader, um, Terence O'Neill, who wanted to do something about some of the worst excesses of this. Um, and figures like um, Ian Paisley... Um, and to to and others to a certain extent didn't want this to 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 change. Basically, um, they 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 wanted that that the the situation as it had been for for about fifty years to to stay the same. Um, and so they they made sure that that Terence O'Neill and other reformers within the Ulster Unionist Party couldn't um, you know make changes in education and. Uh, electoral the electoral situation um and this this kind of culminated in yeah those new those um the reemergence of those paramilitary organisations um and then on the sort of catholic nationalist side um, the emergence of the uh, civil rights campaign um, which um was was intended to have a sort of more broadly um you know non-sectarian um approach um mm. but, it, but it ended up um you know being seen um largely by Protestants as a as a as a sort of nationalist um republican thing um uh, in in part because that's who was mostly supporting it and and it was catholics that were that were most um discriminated against in the labor market i mean not that the labor market was a was a was a great um place for for working class protestants either um so uh, so that that kind of um all fed into to this this growing sectarian situation, which which by sort of 1969, 1970, had had led to to rioting um, in in Belfast and Derry, um, and the the British government um, who so the Northern Irish Parliament was responsible for lots of things in Northern Ireland, um, but the the government in Westminster still had certain responsibilities. And and it was at that point um, after, um, you know, they'd seen what was going on um, with the Northern Irish Police Force, which was then the RUC, on the streets, uh, particularly of Derry, that, that they thought that this sort of other force the british army might might be able to to um right. sort that situation out which um at first the, the british army were were um seen by a lot of catholics as a as a sort of uh, i mean not welcomed with open arms but seen no. as as a sort of um well this has got to be better than the ruc um okay. and, that that kind of was the case for for you know a, a few weeks um and then and then uh, the situation kind of uh, descended again and and the british army had gone from being seen as as this kind of um, placating force to to actually one of kind of strife and an internment
1: mm. were they seen as, as as almost an occupying force in some ways
2: yes yeah um i i think for the as I say for, for, you know, a very short period of time, it was like, I would you know, these guys will just be here for a little, little while just to make sure that the RUC, you know, kind of just rein them in a little bit. And, uh, mm. you know, hopefully then we'll sort out how, how Northern Ireland's governed and, you know, we'll, we'll have a fairer electoral system and, mm. and then we'll have a better police system and we won't need the British army here. Um, but, uh, but you know the, the the army came over, and then they they started interning, um, largely Catholics, some some Protestant paramilitaries, but largely Catholics in in camps without trial. Um, and it was really that 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 it was it was one of those sort of points in history where you think, well, actually, you can you can pinpoint um a specific action and say well if if they'd taken this different approach this probably wouldn't have happened or it wouldn't have happened to this extent and it was really uh the 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 british army coming over um at the end of the 60s early 70s that that gave um the, the ira which had been in existence of course but it gave the ira a sort of pr victory um and a new impetus um because they they actually had something to to point to and say you know look what's going on here and you know legitimately bad stuff was going on um whereas you know the the ira had, had very unsuccessful cam had a very unsuccessful campaign um you know not not at all popular campaign um between 1956 and 1962 and it it failed to shift sort of public opinion even on the on the nationalist side so it was it was one of those those uh classic um sort of british british army british government uh you know making a
1: uh, British cockup. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, let's bring it around to to football now, because um, in the first video in the mini series that that we're making, uh, it was focusing on on Belfast Celtic. You write that uh, the existing tensions between Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland found an outlet in football. Uh, do you think this is a special case, or do you think that this is the part? Uh, you know, this is part of a role of football as a popular sport to facilitate the surrounding social context.
2: I think sport can often be be uh, uh, a fairly um, innocuous outlet for for tension, um, and, and you know people can kind of let off some steam and and, and sort of express themselves in a way that mm-hmm. um, that is is not particularly harmful or damaging. Um, on the other hand, it, it can exacerbate those existing tensions and and uh, and i think when the tensions are so deep-rooted um and so pervasive um as they are in in a context um like belfast and northern ireland and Derry and you know other other parts of northern ireland um then then uh you know that that can that can become something that in lots in in lots of ways, um, makes makes the situation um, worse than it than it was, and and yeah. um, you know that that was certainly the case with with um, Belfast Celtic, who you know found that um, it it was best uh, shortly after the First World War for them to to leave um, the Irish League for a period of time. And then come back, and then and then leave the Irish League altogether, which you know was not entirely down to sectarianism. There seemed to be a lot of money mysteriously disappearing from their coffers. Um, so there's, you know, and everything you read about is is incredibly elusive. Somebody knows what went on, but yeah. um, uh, I think there was obviously t- some directors that were perhaps. Um, taking some money out of the club right? Um, okay. however you know were it not for the sort of sectarian situation then then having the club on a on a sort of more sustainable footing um you know would have would have been more straightforward um and uh, you, you wonder how how a club like Belfast Celtic um playing where they did um would have You know, if they'd been in existence, still been in existence 20 years later in 1968 um, or 30 years later in 1978, um, it probably would have been an impossible situation.
1: Mm. Mm. Uh, It's interesting to to try and examine the the responsibility that football might have when it comes to difficult social contexts like this, because there's lots of examples throughout history um, of it being a sort of positive force in a difficult situation, and you know, I think the the, the obvious example of that is uh, the match uh, on Christmas Day during World War One, uh, when both sides, well, I suppose all three sides, came together to play play a game of football, and then the next day went went back to killing each other. But obviously, there there are examples in in the videos here, uh, the Belfast Celtic and Linfield game in 1948. Uh, where the tension sort of bubbled over and football served as a as a negative outlet for it. What do you think football's responsibility is? I know it obviously comes down to governing bodies. Um, but what do you think football's responsibility is? And, and when can we decide when it's best uh, not for it to, to, to be happening or when it's better for it to be happening, if that makes sense?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky one um, because, you know, if if both teams want to play, then... You feel who you know who is anybody else to tell them um, mm. that they they ought, ought not to and you you had a situation a bit later um, in Belfast where there was a what was then a, a sort of a fully amateur side rather than a, a semi professional side as as um, as the rest of the clubs in Northern Ireland are um, by the name of Donegal Celtic um, who another uh, more uh, recent club from West Belfast who. Um, were, were drawn to, to play um, a uh, an, an Irish Cup game um, in, in the sort of early 90s and uh, it, was suppo- it was supposed to be played at their own ground um, but it was dictated by the RUC that they couldn't play at their own ground and the players voted um, that they wanted to play the game um, but then the and the the governing bodies were happy for the game to be played um but you you had a situation where um perhaps some uh, uh some some paramilitary voices were were sort of whispered in their ear and said, "Look you know we we don't want you to be playing this game uh, you know we don't want uh it, it was a game so the r u c compete um in in uh in sort of irish um football and and it was suggested um by that that certain players had been sort of visited and said well you know we can't guarantee your safety um you know if you play this game and then publicly um from from the sort of Sinn Féin point of view Jerry Adams had had basically said you know we can't um, we can't say that they shouldn't play this game, but but no nationalist and no democrat should should be involved. So you you yeah. have all these competing um, voices, you know. Even when the governing body says no, 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 it's fine. This game can go ahead. We just you know it should be played here and not here because we can't police this bit very well. Mm. Um, then you had a situation, and one of those players who'd who'd uh, the the team took a vote, and I think it' was like twenty three to one in the squad that that they should play and one of those players um uh a few years before had um his his father um had had been uh i think killed by the r u c and even he wanted to 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 play the game um right, yeah. so uh, you know you 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 had this very um tricky situation where where you know you'd you'd have almost everybody in agreement that the game should, should go ahead. But, but then one, one voice would, would say, actually, no, we don't think it should go ahead. And, and because mm. the situation was so fraught, you know, just, just that one, that one piece um, being, being taken out of the, the sort of very complex jigsaw meant that, that going ahead with, with games like that just, just wasn't, wasn't viable.
1: It must have been difficult for the players as well in in those cases. And, you know, there's the story of Jimmy Jones, which crops up in the Belfast Celtic video, um, being the last player from, you know, the safety of the tunnel at the end of the game between Belfast Celtic and Linfield and being attacked by a sort of riotous crowd and having his leg broken. Um, You mentioned in in the video that he was a a Protestant playing for uh, a team that would be more closely associated with, with Catholic uh, nationalism, and so I think it it must be it must have been very difficult for for footballers if they you know purely if they wanted to to play football to be surrounded uh, by this I suppose you know swaying swaying of responsibility and power that they had no control over and that they were subject to like everybody else in in Northern I- Northern Ireland at the time.
2: Yeah, and and that's why particularly after the Second World War, um, you didn't have too many examples of players. Playing for for a club from the opposite side of the tracks, if you like, yeah. it'd been a bit more commonplace um, between the first and second world wars. So you did have uh, a few Catholics that were involved uh, with Limfield. Um, you know that Limfield, in the early nineties, um, under a certain amount of pressure, produced a, a list of Catholics who'd played or been involved with Limfield throughout their history. Um, I think in about 1992, and and throughout the history, they, there was about 70 such names, um, but almost all of them uh, were from before the Second World War. Um, you you also had examples of of uh, a Protestant players. Um, or, or players sort of perceived to be from a Protestant background, to Protestant areas um, like Balmaina or, or East Belfast, who played for Derry City um, as uh, the events that we we discussed a few minutes ago were unfolding. Who uh, who then you know decided that perhaps that wasn't um, the the sort of best. Um, thing that they could be doing for the, for themselves and their families um you know under often under a certain amount of pressure from their their families back home um who were who were getting uh grief from from their own neighbors so you know sometimes that 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 sort of uh criticism if you like was was coming from from their own in the sort of inverted commas their own side um, mm. which was the case of of uh, another belfast celtic player um who played in the same side as jimmy jones uh, i think by the name of harry walker um who uh, who was from a unionist family and and after the uh belfast after belfast celtic had um played their final match in the irish league they they went on a tour of the united states and and they were paraded around pitch i think in new york behind an irish flag um and these sort of images eventually made their way back to belfast and right, and yeah. uh, you know it caused there was five or six protestants playing for or within the belfast celtic squad and and it, it you know it didn't it didn't make their lives easy um, by any stretch of the imagination and then you had even players um Uh, like Terry Cochran, who is a Protestant and he was playing for Linfield and he talks in his autobiography about how when he got married um, in the early 70s. Um, he he got married to he he puts it very tactfully in his autobiography but he says i got married to somebody and because she was of a different denomination they asked me to (laughs) to leave the club and you know you're just left to read between the Mm. the wide open lines there of and and, you know that was that was because of who he'd married Mm -hmm. um so that was that was the, the the sort of the reality of of the situation
1: well let's talk about uh, religion i think that that brings us onto it and well, actually first for, for to satisfy my own, my own curiosity presumably um i don't know a great deal about the the history of ireland but presumably the the original uh, split was as a result of of religion is that right
2: yes i mean you you've had throughout irish history there's been there's been sort of
1: movements
2: um that have involved um ostensibly sort of uh, a large amount of Protestants and Catholics working together. So the United Irishmen Rebellion in 1798 um, was was uh, uh, with Wolf Tone was was something that that sort of Presbyterians and Catholics got together on um, mm. against the the sort of basically the the Church of Ireland and the sort of uh, more established church. But um, but but you know those. Those kind of moments of of working together um, have have obviously largely been overshadowed by by the uh, the much longer periods of time where where Protestants and Catholics have have been in in conflict, and and so mm. you know the Protestants have tended to come, um, especially Presbyterians from from Scotland. Mm. Um, and then Church of Ireland types had come from England, and they were um, sent over to Ireland to sort of try and quell what was seen as a as a sort of restive population um, right. that, that needed to be brought under control. So, um, so that the, the farms were given to, to English Protestants and Scottish Protestants um, to say, you know, you you kind of come and settle this place. Um, and and bring it bring it under control in effect and mm-hmm. and uh um you know we can see you know the the sort of legacy of that today um and 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 none more so in in Ulster, which was seen as the most rebellious um of, of Ireland's four provinces um and and therefore um you know was was the most sort of heavily um colonized um right through the through the centuries um and and so obviously this this led to um a a quite understandable amount of tension because people were having their their land just just taken away from them um Mm -hmm. it was it wasn't that there was no catholic landowners but it was very hard to be a catholic landowner Mm -hmm. um um and and so it was much harder um to 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 just survive as a catholic you know on a day-to-day level um you know just having enough to eat and and being able to to farm enough to to support yourself and your family um so it's not as as you know sometimes thought well you know how can how can they disagree over these tiny points of doctrine and you know because there are kind of doctrinal differences but it it, you know it, the the actual quote unquote religious aspects of it, in in terms of how religion is practiced, um, are, yeah. are sort of they're there, but they're they're secondary.
1: Well, that's the thing. I think it, you know it, it sounds like it's more about uh, oppression than it than it really is about the religion. You know, I think I think religion sort of plays plays into it in an obvious way. Um, but veering away from from football slightly for a moment, um, I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine who. Uh, visited Belfast for the first time this year, and uh, his take on it was was very interesting. He, um, you know, made an effort to sort of wander around the city, uh, walk into scary looking pubs, and talk to you know people fr- from I suppose uh, both sides of of the coin. Um, and he he recalled one conversation with uh, an older gentleman who was uh, was a Catholic and was uh, in a nationalist area. But eventually, when they, they got talking. This man said to him that, you know, he used to he used to hate the English and he used to think that, you know, the, the English were the source of all his all of his problems. And then in the seventies and the eighties he saw Margaret Thatcher on T V talking about the miners' strikes and he realized that, you know, what the, the English weren't his enemy, it was it was, I think, wealthy people regardless of their uh, regardless of their nationality or people who would seek to you know oppress others that were that were the issue not you know english uh, english people as a whole and i found that i found that conversation very interesting and it sort of struck me then that you know that the, the 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 situation is less about anything specifically regarding religion or, or wealth or anything like that but potentially about years of oppression you get to this point now and you 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 combine that with football and it's very it's very difficult to as you said it's very difficult to answer the first question giving us a brief history because depending on who you ask you'll get a different story and uh, i think it's it's very difficult to, to to answer this question but but when religion is thrown into the mix of that let's say uh, you know within the within the confines of a football ground when religion is thrown into the mix do you, do you think that it that it adds a further stress to those to the tensions or or is it all just part of of, of tribalism all in all in different forms
2: I, I think you, you can see from the example of, of places like Belfast, but also places like Glasgow, it it, it definitely adds a, a further tension and it, it goes beyond a sort of, um, I mean, obviously, you, you know, through the 70s, 80s, uh, perhaps even just early 90s, you, you had trouble at English grounds uh, with hooliganism. Um, so it, it's not that. That England was completely immune to any trouble at grounds, but it didn't have this, this extra element um, to it, um, which actually. Interest- and what is
1: that about, though? Is is that about the, the the history of those people, or is it is that about their religious belief?
2: I I, I would personally say it was about the history um, mm. of of those people and 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 kind of uh, growing up very separately. Um, both on an individual basis and and then on a sort of institutional basis as as well. So, in in effect, you don't have one civil society in in Northern Ireland. You have two very separate civil societies that 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 have different sort of not not so much these days different institutions because the Good Friday Agreement has has kind of. Um, brought some of that into into line, but but very mm. diff, just very different um, sort of uh, expectations um, and d- different methods of of schooling. Even today, you know, schooling, um, which is the case in Scotland to a, to a, a slightly lesser extent, but um, you know, in in Northern Ireland, t- still to a very great extent. Um, is is just almost completely segregated schooling?
1: Okay, well if that's the case, then let, let let's update everything else. It it seems generally. Uh, maybe maybe I'm wrong, but it seems generally like a slightly more relaxed state of affairs. Um, you know, in, in, in the script on, on a forthcoming video uh, on Linfield, Northern Ireland's most successful team, um, and also often closely associated with uh, the unionist movement, that the team now has a, a Catholic captain. It, it, um,
2: well, yeah, I mean, it, it had its first Catholic captain in 2011, I think. Right, OK. Um, he plays for somebody else now, but yeah. Oh,
1: uh, that's poor research on my part, but there you <laughs> go. It's still the same sentiment, <laughs> yeah, isn't yeah. it? Um, but that does seem like a like significant progress given the history of segregation within the league. Um, what is the current state of the league with regards to any existing tensions? And also, I wanted to ask: you know, has the atmosphere at all resurfaced with the advent of Brexit or with the DUP's position in in the current British Parliament?
2: I th- I think it's it's important to to recognise that in terms of the playing staff of of teams like Linfield, which until the early 90s so from the late sort of 40s to the early 90s the you know there was perhaps two three Catholics that were involved with Linfield um, in, in any capacity so their physio um, during the sort of 50s um, was a Catholic and they had a Hungarian Catholic um, who'd, who'd fled uh, the uprising in Hungary in 1956 um, who played for Linfield Swifts, which is the name of Linfield's second team, for a couple of seasons. Um, but they ha- had almost no Irish Catholics or, or Northern Irish Catholics, if you um, prefer that term, um, in their sort of setup for about 45 to, to 50 years. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, 1992 um, kind of saw a certain amount of criticism of, of Linfield for for that um I think as as the um the video kind of goes into um from from outside of Ireland from the United States Mm -hmm. and uh and Linfield um had said well actually we you know we've never had an official policy and and it's true they'd never had an official policy um there was perhaps more more of a even calling it an unspoken policy um, would uh, raise certain hackles, but mm. I think what Linfield would themselves say—this uh, and this isn't a, a defence or a, or a criticism of Linfield, but you know they'd say they'd they'd perhaps wanted to to sign Catholics um, or nationalists before that, but it would have made life very hard for those individuals as well. Um, yeah. So, shortly after they they put out a statement with with words to that effect, they did try and sign a guy uh, who played for was playing for Cliftonville. Um, I think he was called Jim McFadden or something uh, similar to that. And, and he said, "Look, you know where I live, um, which was in the New Lodge in North Belfast. It, it wouldn't work for me um, yeah. to to play for Linfield. You know, I, I live in this area where." My, my life would be very difficult if I did that. People from my own community would be asking questions about why, why I was doing that. Um, a, a few, not, you know, not more than a few months, uh, after that, Linfield did, uh, manage to, to sign a Catholic player. Um, and that was then followed by their first, um, Catholic signing from the Republic of Ireland, um, which was something that they they hadn't done for about half a century, um, and and now you know you'd you'd uh, I honestly could barely tell you the the sort of quite unquote religion, and I suspect very few of them go to church anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, of of the Linfield team now, um, uh, but but you'd you'd find a, a, a fairly balanced team. So what tends to be the demarcation? Um, within within irish league football today um is uh as it always has been uh but but without the sort of player aspect but but which which team you, you know you can support um and which team uh t- you tend to gravitate to depending on um you know which part of the city you grew up on yeah. Um, and which part of the city you grew up in, you know, is largely whether you call yourself a Protestant or a Catholic. Mm. Um, you know, whether you're practicing in in it as a as a Protestant or a Catholic is is another question. But you know, yeah. the, those words have have a slightly different and sort of elevated meaning um, in, in Northern Ireland
1: and what about with uh, with brexit going forwards and with uh, the Northern Irish Party the DUP now holding a, a more significant position within the British Parliament has has that reignited any tension in the country
2: well uh, I mean to, to paraphrase a quite famous Jerry Adams quote it it never went away you know <laughs> right um, but uh, which he said about um, the IRA which was one of his sort of more ill conceived um post good friday remarks but um you know the, that that kind of stuff has never fully gone away um mm-hmm. it it's just become less pronounced and and, yeah. and less sort of uh, egregious um you know pe- people who um saw anything from the the um sort of pre qualifying champions league um game between Linfield and and, uh, Celtic earlier this year would have seen it's not so much in the chanting anymore because you know with the with the chants you know you you, you're sort of putting yourself on that's a bit more of a a bit more of a limb but it's kind of the banners that are are hung up around the ground and that sort of thing that that can still um you know there's still things that you would see at, at, at games uh in, in the Irish league that, that you wouldn't see in, in most English grounds or most Scottish grounds. Yeah. Um, and yeah. you've still got sort of situations where, you know, when when uh, that, that game at, at Windsor Park between Linfield and Glasgow Celtic had, had finished, uh, a, a Celtic player, uh, I think it was Lee Griffiths, tried to go and tie a Celtic scarf to the, the post at Windsor Park um, yeah. because Glasgow Celtic were a sister club of Belfast Celtic and obviously mm-hmm. came from that that same um, sort of uh, uh, Catholic um, uh, Irish uh, sort of origins and, and were set up for similar reasons and, and Belfast Celtic was set up with the aid of a of a of a donation from from Glasgow Celtic so you know there's still those things going on they're just yeah. not not um uh not to the sort of uh, extent or or severity that that they were in the the 70s and 80s where you had you had paramilitary organisations sort of uh you know lobbing grenades into grounds or you had yeah. little loyalist old ladies chucking the embers from from their still smoking fires <laughs> um at, at, at people at, at people at, at, at fans of opposing clubs trying to enter yeah. the ground because the, you know a lot of the grounds um tend to be in quite densely packed sort of working class areas so it was very easy for a little old lady to get a shovel and you know fling some coal fling some embers um at some <laughs> cliftonville fans or or you know the other way around depending on where it was when you know. put it
1: like that ben it's, it all sounds like good healthy fun
2: well yeah i mean that that was was quite an a, amusing uh a tale to discover <laughs> probably not amusing if you were um, you i know, imagine that on the other end of uh at the other end of it although looking then looking across and seeing that some sort of septuagenarian had just uh flung at you was <laughs>
1: something to talk about in the pub. yeah 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 um what, what what in your opinion then what do you uh what do you think the future holds uh for the area and for football in northern ireland and, and indeed the republic
2: well i i think um just to i i was gonna just talk about the dup and i realized that i ended up talking about uh bunch of old ladies basically but
1: um i hope that's not a a clever joke (laughs)
2: um so the uh, i mean you know you asked about brexit and and the dup and i honestly don't know what's going to happen with the irish border and brexit i don't think anybody does it seems Mm. virtually impossible to uh you know to to have any sort of customs or well, just- for
1: for any listeners who, who uh, sorry to interrupt, but for any listeners who, who aren't aware of, of what's happened recently, Brexit, of course, I think most people will know that what that is. You know, as through the result of a referendum, uh, Britain has decided, uh, or the UK has decided to secede from the European Union. But when we say uh, when we talk about the DUP uh, after or not not too long after Brexit, a few months after Theresa May, who is the leader of the Conservative Party and the current Prime Minister, decided to hold a, a snap election. Uh, presumably, I think under the illusion that she was going to win a much larger majority for the Conservative Party. What happened instead that, uh, was that uh, the Conservative Party actually lost a number of seats. Uh, the Labour Party won uh, won a number and. The Conservatives uh, were a few seats short of holding a majority within the Commons, which would mean that they were more easily able to pass uh, laws that they would see fit without, you know, the assistance of other parties. So uh, they looked around to, to seek a deal from another party. And the DUP, who were the Democratic Unionist Party in Northern Ireland, uh, had eight seats at the time and were the only party around that were likely to form a partnership with the Conservatives. So now I think the problem in Northern Ireland, if I'm right in thinking, is that there's potentially a slight imbalance in power uh, between the DUP and Sinn Féin, who are the traditionally nationalist party. That's
2: that's right. Yeah. So the DUP, I think, actually went up to 10 seats um, uh, I think the Conservatives needed eight seats to to get the majority, and the DUP have got ten, which um, so that makes them the largest party in Northern Ireland. Um, Sinn Féin also made up some ground; uh, both both of them made up ground at at the expense of smaller parties, um, and
1: uh, so although Sinn Féin MPs don't take their seats, they so don't.
2: They? No um but but obviously yeah uh, the the fact that those seats weren't taken for example by the SDLP um yeah. meant that um you know the certain other permutations were were sort of um uh you know off the table in terms of any you know say the labor party mm-hmm. um you know was was within touching distance of of uh, of a majority Um, uh, Within that context, there's the Northern Irish Irish Assembly, um, which there was elections for even earlier um, in this year, um, and which uh, uh, the DUP and Sinn Féin were, were again, the largest parties there, but haven't been able to form a a power-sharing executive, um, so there's been no devolved government, effectively in in uh in the northern irish assembly um since the end of january um so um it's difficult to see how that's going to move forward um, yeah i i think what what we're probably going to end up with is is a period of of a year two years maybe longer of direct rule of northern ireland from westminster um and uh and then in a sort of post Brexit scenario, perhaps the parties try trying another election and then the two parties probably I mean not probably, almost certainly being the same two parties again, but perhaps having an, another crack at it in a sort of post Brexit context. Um because Sinn, Sinn Fein may believe that uh depending on what what sort of the economic realities that, that Brexit unleashes that, that um People might be more receptive to a, a united island or a vote on a united island. Yeah, um, the in- obvious
1: the obvious issue there is that once Brexit goes through, uh, the Republic of Ireland remains part of the European Union. So the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland uh, will have to be. M- theoretically more heavily policed than it currently is for reasons of you know customs and and people coming across and and, and leaving right
2: which which would be i mean i won't get into the weeds of this because it's literally the weeds because the border is in people's gardens in a lot of places there's like three (laughs) nearly four hundred miles of border and sometimes it goes through people's houses, so their, yeah. their lounge is in Northern Ireland and their bathroom is in the Republic of Ireland. I, I don't know it's if you've other. seen
1: this video, but there's a fantastic video of a, a farmer from Northern Ireland whose sheepdog uh, just runs across uh, and the farmer says, oh, he's just gone to visit the Republic <laughs> and now he's come back to Northern Ireland and just the dog just is free to do whatever he wants
2: i haven't seen that no but i'll, I'll check that out later so mm. i honestly don't know what happened I, I don't think there'll be a customs border or or any sort of I, because it just can't work basically yeah. and, and it would give give um, any sort of dissident republican organization a, a pretext to to wage some sort of campaign um because you know it's very easy to to feel like there's no borders when, when both countries are within the European union. Um, but if there was something, a physical manifestation of that, Mm. and if it took you, you know, a little while to cross it, you know, there's, there's tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people who, who work, live on one side of the border and work on the other side of the border. Um, so, uh, um, you know, the next few years could, could be tricky. Um, Mm. It's a bit of a nightmare, basically. Yes, yes. Yeah. I think uh, everybody who thought that we could have a vote on Brexit and it wouldn't happen just thought, well, we're never going to have to sort stuff like this out because it's never going to happen.
1: Yeah. And yeah. it did. So. OK, well, let's talk about something a little bit less nightmarish. Uh, let's talk about you and your, your recent book, Gunshots and Goalposts, The Story of Northern Irish Football. Um, ben, if you would, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, why you decided to write the book?
2: Um, so I um, was at a uh, symposium for the launch of another book about a year ago, um, and that was a book um, on uh, English football in 1966, uh, called 1966, and all that. Um, and it you know had various authors doing different chapters, and and they were sort of took a chapter each and were talking about what the the sort of social context of 1966 was um what else had been going on that year what what England's um triumph in in that year meant to the country you know looking at it from this kind of holistic perspective so you know within that book there is like a a, a match report as well um so it's a it's a football book but it's it's a it's a book that goes beyond football and and I uh I I kind of um, thought well, I wonder if anything has has been written about uh, Northern Ireland in in this way. And obviously, within um, Northern Ireland, you don't have a, a, a great tournament victory um, like the nineteen sixty six World Cup. Um, but obviously, you have certain contexts where where football and politics were, were intertwined. Um, you know, you hardly have any contexts where they weren't. And I'm uh, although I uh, was born in England and speak with a very English accent, my uh, my sort of family tree on my dad's side is um, is all Irish, um, if you like, and uh, to please my grand, I should perhaps say Northern Irish. Um, uh, so you know, we could we go back a long way in in the northern part of Ireland. Um, so. Uh, um, so, so that was something that I that I started to take a look at, and you know, came across some some stories that I I wasn't familiar with. Um, you know, the nineteen twelve match between um, between Belfast Celtic and Ninfield and and that in the context of of the uh, Ulster Covenant, uh, which was which was signed by about a quarter of a million men, and a similar document signed by a quarter of a million women. Uh, mm. A couple of weeks after that Belfast Celtic v um, Linfield game, now actually, one of the, the men that signed that was was my great grandfather. Um, so uh, you know, I kept finding bits of bits of my own family line and family tree in yeah in this um, in the in these tales uh, really, and you know, some of the book touches on the links between the the great shipbuilding yards of Harland and Wolfe and workman and Clark in Belfast, and they provided employment for 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 so many until the sort of sixties and seventies um and you know a lot of the the players that came up around then um a, as well and and my great grandfather um uh, w- was employed there as well, so it was it was a sort of as well as delving into northern Irish footballing history an Irish history Um, Mm. it was it was diving into my own family tree I came across a few a few old blokes who uh, (laughs) played for Northern Ireland in the 30s um, with the surname Roberts that that can't be too distantly related to myself so
1: (laughs) Did you learn anything else interesting about about your family specifically when you were when you were doing this?
2: I spoke to my uh, my grandmother who's still alive, and uh, you know she said, "Oh yeah, you know I, I had this, uh, you you know your great uncle whatever he had this son. And he played for Glen Torren for five years, and you know yeah. he was supposed to have this great career, and you know he was a bit too fond of the drink, and you know all these stories <laughs> coming out that you think, well, why have you never told me this before?" Uh, but, <laughs> Um, so yeah, some, some quite, um, quite sort of remarkable, um, family stuff coming out of it as well. You know, just he- hearing about the, the first, cause my, my dad was born in, uh, Lisburn, which is a sort of fairly well-to-do, um, suburb of Belfast. Um, and, uh, um, but they, you know, they lived in and around there and then, and then for a time in East Belfast and, uh, his his dad used to take him to uh, to watch a, a team who are just a bit below the the top division of the um, Irish um, League Distillery, um, who played um, in in a, a ground called Grosvenor Park in West Belfast, um, which uh, they don't play in any longer. They were bombed out of there during the troubles, um, and they they do play in Lisburn now, but. Uh, um, you know, just hearing my dad tell tell that story and and trying to work out why why his dad took him up up the Falls Road, which you know my dad's dad was a was a, a Protestant vicar, so you you wonder what. But then you know it was the early sixties, and although that was not um, not a, a sort of normal time, it was it was a slightly more innocent time than than the mm. late sixties. So. Mm.
1: And would you like to tell listeners uh, where they can find and uh, and buy and read uh, several copies of your book, buy it for all their family members and everyone they know?
2: Yeah, um, you can get it through uh, the usual sort of places that you might get a book online. So uh, Amazon, there's a Kindle version, um, and you can buy the paperback from various sources on Amazon, including uh, a seller who's selling it for more cheaply than I am at the moment (laughs) Um, do you have
1: anything else you'd like to shamelessly promote Ben uh, I uh, I
2: I don't no your twitter handle oh my twitter handle it's uh, It's not shameless
1: at all I was just joking but sorry go on say it again because I've talked over you now
2: (laughs) okay uh, so um, uh, the twitter handle is at R, which is uh, at b-e-n-j-a mark r um, and uh, the Facebook page for the book is facebook.com forward slash gunshots and goalposts. Um, and you can also get hold of the book through my uh, own website, publisher website, which is polyfootmedia.com, P O L I footmedia.com. And if you do want to buy multiple copies, um, perhaps as stocking fillers. Um, that's the best place to get hold of multiple copies for as cheap as
1: possible. Hey, isn't Christmas coming up? Well, you know. Look at that. Who knew? Who who knew to release a book around this time of year? It's it was almost, actually supposed to come out in the person. spring. It was supposed oh, to come out sure. in
2: March, but I hadn't written it sure enough it of was. it. So.
1: <laughs> okay, Ben Roberts, thank you very much for your time, and uh, hopefully we'll speak to you again in the future.
2: Thanks, Joe.